Welcome to episode 22 of the Calibre podcast, brought to you by Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, CEO Brian Duffy discusses Rolex's iconic moments with author and renowned Rolex expert, James Dowling. So hello everyone, welcome to our latest podcast. Uh, my name is Brian Duffy, I'm the CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland Group. Uh, delighted that you could join us uh, today and very pleased that we're getting such a great following and audiences in this series of uh, podcasts that we've been doing. Uh, this is our 22nd uh, in the series and I'm delighted today to be joined for the second time uh, by the recognised expert on the world of uh, Rolex and that's James Dowling. James, welcome. Lovely to see you. Hello, Brian. Always good to see you. James, uh, as we covered in our previous podcast, uh, is the author of the best reference book there is in Rolex, and that's called The Best of Time, Rolex Watches. Two wonderful uh, volumes of uh, great photographs, great information. And you have another book uh, that you're working on uh, that I know you're hoping will come out sometime later this year. Yes. Yes, Brian. That's the my new book, for Schiffer Publishing, which is to be called Rolex, the Hans Wilsdorf years. I mean, it covers the period between 1905, when he founded the company, and 1960, when he passed away. The second volume will be out sometime in probably the next century. <laughs> well, the, the one you are working on, I'm very much looking forward to see. It's, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll be uncovering some other really interesting facts and anecdotes about this wonderful brand. So we all look forward to seeing it. Hopefully it will be around pre-Christmas in uh, 2019. Rolex, uh, as uh, we all know, those of us that are in the business and I think pretty much everybody on the planet would know is the number one luxury uh, watch brand in the world and one of the best known and most best known and most popular brands overall. Remarkably popular with all generations, uh, actually including the young generation Z, the, the millennials, it just seems to be a wonderful brand. And uh, surprisingly, for a lot of people, a relatively young brand in the world of watches, very much a 20th century brand. Very much so. It's Most people think of Rolex as this great giant Swiss watch company that's obviously, like all watch companies, have been going on for centuries founded by two little Swiss watchmakers, one of whose names started with RO and one of whose names started with <laughs> LEX, but none of the above is true. They're actually a very young brand, started in only 1905, and started not so strangely in London. And this, the reason I say not so strangely is that 1905 was really the end of the Victorian era, but it was the height of the British Empire. And London wasn't, at that time, wasn't just the capital city of London. It was the biggest city in the world. It was the hub of the British Empire. And what was unique about the British Empire and differentiated it from all the other empires that came before it was that it wasn't a military empire, it was a commercial empire. It relied, it made its money on trade not on looting and plundering. And the role of the army and the navy at that time was to back up Britain's commercial interests, not to conquer territory. So it was a sensible place for young Hans to come and try and seek his fortune. And he bloody well did. Yes, he absolutely did. As a young man, I think of 22, mm -hmm. uh, making his way, and, uh, and again, we talked in our previous podcast about his, his, his upbringing and, uh, and so on. In Bavaria, but clearly a very young and visionary uh, man who came here and found his fortune. And as you say, del delighted that he did, and delighted that he created this uh, wonderful uh, brand that now leads the world of of, uh, of luxury watches. So we're going to talk about some of the major events and icons and uh, references and products of, uh, that really make Rolex uh, what it is today. And uh, the, the breakthroughs that we talk about technically, clearly that you know influenced the whole world of watches. But about precision, waterproofness, and uh, and ultimately the automatic. But starting with precision, uh, which was the first thing that they clearly had to conquer with the with a wristwatch. The problem with watches in the early days was that the size of a watch was directly related to the accuracy, mm. because the accuracy of a watch was based on the size of the balance and the inertia that you could impart to that balance. So 
with a tiny watch, and wristwatches obviously had to be tinier than pocket watches, it was very difficult to make them accurate. It took a lot of work. And so what Hans did was to approach the Egler family, from whom he bought all his movements, and tell them that he would be prepared to pay for somebody to go through all the movements, find the one that was the most accurate, and then, once they'd found that watch, to then regulate the movement so that it would be even more accurate and would eventually pass the very strict criteria that the Swiss astronomical observatories had for regulating timepieces. And amazingly, in 1910, he did that. And it was done with what would now what we would now consider to be a ladies' size watch. It was mm. a ten line movement, so it's like twenty five millimeters across, mm. and it was world breaking. And, and at, at the time, as we again have discussed before, back then, a gentleman would only be seen with a, with a pocket watch as something that gave him status and technically accuracy. Uh, but Hans Wilsdorf had the vision that that it was a much more practical thing to have in your wrist and as again we discussed previously made much more obvious when the war started in 1914 but he really did have a vision that was very much against popular opinion at the time. It wasn't so much that he was against them it was that he he was in a, a, a different situation. There's a saying in the software industry when people come up with a problem um, no, that's not a bug. It's a feature. In other words, you think it's a problem, but no, no, it's something that's good about it. Yeah. And Hans had a whole bunch of bugs. He had a whole bunch of problems. He wasn't Swiss. He wasn't a watchmaker. He didn't have a factory with 100 years of experience behind him. So, but he took all of those and made them to his advantage. Mm. So rather than trying to replicate what everybody else was doing, which was making pocket watches, he decided to do to plough a new furrow because one, there wasn't as much competition, and two, it allowed him to differentiate himself from all these other people who were all doing the same thing. Mm. And so that's why, and although there were other people making wristwatches, he, he then had to differentiate himself from them, and he did it via accuracy. And... Um I mean, a quote that I remember back from then about the the prejudice, if you like, that was against it was uh, some gentleman saying he'd, he'd rather be seen in a skirt than uh, wear a wristlet, as they were called back then. But I know that you and I are both kilt-wearing uh, exactly. individuals for the right yeah. opportunity, so wearing a skirt wasn't a problem. So if that was meant as an insult, <laughs> you, you and I wouldn't, wouldn't have taken Pick the that wrong way. guys. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he he did get his chronometer uh, certified in BN 1910, and then not far from here, just down the River Thames in Kew in 1914. Which was that a bigger deal that he got Kew certification? It, it, it was a much bigger deal chronometry-wise because the Kew test was much more difficult than the Swiss observatory test. Mm-hmm. The Observatory tests were designed to see how accurate pocket watches could be. The observatory tests were to test navigational deck watches which although they were the same size or perhaps a little bit bigger than a pocket watch had to be much more regular and so the the Q test was 45 days at four different temperatures and as it was an again a 10 line revert movement from Aigler my gut feelings it probably was the same movement that passed at both BN and yeah. at Q and that they took the time to re-regulate it in between the two and produce an even finer result. Yeah, right. And I guess for his market back then, which was the British Empire, having Q certification commercially would have been even more relevant. It, it would have been phenomenal. Yep. And the, one of the reasons that manufacturers put watches in for testing at Q was that the British government would then would list them as suppliers to the Royal Navy. Mm. If you passed the chronometry test, you were then eligible to sell watches to the Royal Navy for using deck watches. Yep. 
And so Rolex were in the bizarre position of having a lady's wristwatch that could have been used to steer a World War I yep. dreadnought battleship. Yeah, which was shortly thereafter <laughs> to become very relevant, obviously, with the, with the outbreak of war um, that, that year. The next uh, major uh, development that he had to overcome was making his watch waterproof which he finally did in 1926. Yeah, the, the problem they found with wristwatches was that it wasn't, the accuracy may be okay once it leaves the observatory, but a wristwatch is exposed to much more chance of dust and dirt and moisture getting inside it. Not so much water, mm. but just atmospheric moisture. And the problem with the oils of those days was that they tended to gum up a lot easier than modern synthetic oils. Yep. And that would massively affect the performance of the watch. So it may be very accurate when it leaves the observatory, but within six months or so, the accuracy could be degraded quite considerably. So along with uh, John Harwood, who was looking, who invented the automatic watch at that time, both he and Wilsdorf were looking at a way of making the watch impermeable, not so that people could swim in it, because nobody swam with watches. It was just, it was a ludicrous idea, but making it more usable on a day-to-day -day basis, stopping all the crap getting into the movement and mm. stopping the oils degrading. And that was the purpose of making notionally the watch waterproof. You, make, saying it was waterproof was a way of showing that it was impervious to all these other things. Yes, and as you say, much more relevant humidity and, and dust and everything else than, uh, as you say, waterproof. Although I was in Spain last week on a family holiday. And, uh, oh, that's where the tan came from. That's where yeah. the tan comes from. And I was wearing my Submariner. My son had the uh, Oyster Perpetual, which he took off every time he, <laughs> he dived into the pool. But of course, I told him that was uh, that, that was completely wrong. With her. If it's good enough for uh, 300 metres, or, uh, or even 1,000 metres in the case of the Sea uh, Dweller, it was OK for a swimming pool in Marbella. So uh, waterproof, and uh, of course, famously, um, the first ambassador, if you like, of, uh, uh, of Rolex, and maybe the, the start of the great marketing vision was, uh, was Mercedes-Glenz. Yes. Mercedes was obviously appealed to Hans because she, like him, had a very German name, even though she was English, mm. Mercedes-Gleitzer. She was a long-distance swimmer and was the first English woman to swim the, the channel. But unfortunately, when she swam it, there was great uproar as to whether she actually had done it or not, because she didn't have a sufficient number of independent witnesses. And so she decided that she would do a confirmation swim and that she would attempt it again. Mm. The problem was that she did it rather late in the year. You really only want to be swimming the channel in the summer when there's been some warm weather, so it's not absolutely freezing. There's mm. very strong tides in the English Channel. She attempted it in October of 26 and in fact she didn't make it but she did wear one of Wilsdorf's new Rolex watches. Interestingly she didn't wear it on her wrist because she didn't want it to interfere with her swimming stroke and she wasn't sure if it would. She wore she took the band off and put a ribbon through one of the lugs and wore it round her neck. In my opinion, that probably ensured that it stayed in the water all the time and had a harder time than if it had actually been on her wrist. Nevertheless, she got almost all the way there. She was only about a mile off Calais or Cap Grinet when she gave up and had to be carried into the boat. And even though she didn't actually complete the swim, the watch performed flawlessly. Mm. And not long after, Woolsdorf took out the famous front page of the Daily Mail announcing that the watch had completed the swim and including a recommendation from Miss Glaxer herself mm. saying how wonderful the watch was. Yeah, which... I mean, he clearly was a visionary in many ways, but including marketing and branding, I would say, and that was clearly a, a great move to make. And then he actually did some um, advertising, which we featured in our stores back then, 
um, of advertising the watch inside a, an aquarium with a goldfish bill. Goldfish, yeah. Everybody forgets about Hans Wolfsdorf is that he wasn't a watchmaker. I have all of the records of Rolex going back to its founding and in the annual financial reports that one has to list with Companies House, which I'm sure you know about, Brian, you have to list the board, all the directors, and you have to list an address for them and an occupation. And in every piece of paper that Hans Wilsdorf ever signed in which he had to write what his occupation was, he wrote merchant. Mm. Somebody who buys it at one price and sells it at another price. Yep. He didn't write watchmaker. Nowadays we would call them a marketer. And that was, that was Wilsdorf's greatest skill. He was a marketer. Yep. He could see the possibilities of things and then see what the long distance possibilities were. Yeah, I mean, we've referred to him a few times yep. as the Steve Jobs of his, uh, of his era, which uh, I think is a very, very good, uh, very good comparison. So he's, he has an accurate watch uh, from 1910. He has a waterproof watch from 26. And then 1931, he, uh, he patents the uh, bi-directional or 36 or 360 degree uh, rotor with the automatic. Yeah, uh, I mentioned John Harwood this earlier. Harwood came out with a watch which didn't have a winding crown so as to solve the problem of uh, dust getting into the movement. And so to do that, is because you couldn't, because there was no crown, you couldn't wind it. So he, he invented an automatic movement just for the heck of it. And his automatic movement was pivoted in the center of the movement and rotated through about 270 degrees. The problem was that his patent prevented anybody else having a rotor pivoted in the center of the movement. And it wasn't until Harvard's company went bust that Rolex took the brilliantly expedient step of devising a frame that fitted straight on top of their basic eight and three quarter movement and via a rotor which was pivoted in the center and spun through 360 degrees this rotor was then geared down and geared onto the winding wheel of the barrel and this the movement of the wrist wound the barrel unlike harwood's watch it still retained the crown and which enabled you to wind it if you weren't active enough to keep the watch going yep. And the key thing that Wilsdorf did was he integrated the this new automatic system with his Oyster case. So you now had a watch that was accurate as a chronometer, yep. that was waterproof as an Oyster, and that was automatic, or as we call it nowadays, a perpetual. And on these very early automatics, one of the things that's very noticeable about them is that they have a tiny little winding ground. And the reason for that was that he wanted to show off. This is a watch you didn't need to wind. Yep. This is a watch that was accurate enough that you didn't have to keep resetting the time. This was a watch that was waterproof, so you didn't have to worry about anything getting into it. Mm. And this was a watch because it was automatic. You didn't have to bother winding it up. So the winding crown you might use once a month or so. Yep. And the, the three most in, important innovations in the world of uh, um, of wristwatches, and we credit them all to Rolex. And uh, then started some you know major events, major new product developments. We'll talk through, and uh, major associations with 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 adventure and. May, may I even say uh, glamour, where one of which I think was very relevant, and Sir Malcolm Campbell regularly wearing a Rolex watch when he was regularly breaking the the world speed record up to 300 miles an hour in Daytona and other places back in 1935, and and um, as I understood it, he he gave very much a a personal endorsement of, uh, of of his experience of the accuracy of Rolex with what he was doing. Yes, in fact, one of the earliest known adverts from what we now call an ambassador was the one from Malcolm Campbell, which was a direct replica of the telegram that he sent to Rolex London and that said, wore your Rolex Oyster when I broke 300 miles an hour at Daytona. Yep. And interestingly, underneath it, Rolex wrote that 
So Malcolm has received no compensation for this endorsement, which I thought was quite interesting because it was very common at that time for important and popular people to be paid by manufacturers. At that time, there were things like uh, the, the most famous actor of the time, Du Maurier, even had a brand of cigarettes named after him. Yeah. And people were paid either flat fees or percentages of sales. Malcolm Campbell did it free of charge because yeah. he enjoyed the product and he obviously regarded it with great admiration. Yep. Which uh, celebs ain't what they used to be, that they, they would do that unsolicited and, uh, and free, but I think a, one, a wonderful statement of just yeah. what, a, what the Rolex product was at that time. And then some uh, modern icons then started coming along, uh, the date just, the first ever uh, date at three o'clock. This was the first ever watch where the, the date was viewable through a window. Rolex had actually made watches with dates. Yep. Um, they made them as early as 1915, but these were what are known as pointer dates, where the dates from 1 to 31 were printed on the outside of the dial, and a lengthy hand would go round, would move once a day and point to whatever day it was. Yep. This wasn't as convenient as it meant you had to search around looking for the hand and looking for the pointer. With this, with the new system of using just a small window, it was very easy. You quickly looked, you knew where it was every day. Yep. It was always in the same place. It was easy. And it changed what was simply the Oyster Perpetual into the Oyster Perpetual Datejust, which became the iconic watch of the second half of the 20th century yep. and still remains so today. And when did the Cyclops Eye come along? 54. And is it true that it was because of Hans Wilsdorf's wife as a, a little hard of... I find that very difficult to believe. Yeah. Um, Wilsdorf was married twice. His first wife died in 1944, so it could have been her. The second one, Betty, I think was ma he married her in 55. So if the watch was introduced in 54, which particular wife was it? Yeah. That, that, that would start some interesting conversation on the, on the life of Hans Bilsdorf. It's probably one of these things that just come along from uh, rumour and speculation and become fact. But I, I did read somewhere that it was because she had difficulty seeing. And you have those, I think they're very cool when you see these yeah. early, early year ones of a date just with a yeah. little square. The, the, what was interesting though was that the role of the Cyclops was actually very important because it enabled the production of a ladies' version of the date trust. Yeah. Without a Cyclops, the size of the date window on a ladies' date version yeah. was impossible to read. Yeah. So without that Cyclops, it was impossible to introduce. And in fact, the ladies' date trust was introduced in 55. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, it all happened in 55. Yeah. The year after my birth, for what it's worth. F famous year. Uh, shortly thereafter, the, the famous Day Date. Yes, the Day Date and the Cyclops came along pretty much together. Mm. And the Day Date was an attempt by Rolex to produce a, a watch at the top end of the market. At this point, the Date just had been, was their most expensive watch. And for the first few years, just three or four years, it was only available as an 18 karat gold watch. Mm. But in an attempt to broaden the market appeal and to get more product into the hands of customers, the date just then became available in steel and gold and in steel. They didn't have a flagship watch. What had been their flagship watch, the Prince, went out of production in the very early 50s. So they were left without something as, as a pinnacle and the day date was brought in to fulfill that role. Mm. And it's a role that it, it has fulfilled now for well over half a century. Yeah, I, I personally think it's the most iconic yeah. Rolex you can see as, a, as the day date. And, and you know, how many languages did it do? The, 26. 26. Like, that's super cool to have one in a foreign language. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, a friend of mine has one with the date disc, with the day disc in Latin. Oh, great. Very handy. If ever comes back in fashion, he's, uh, he's well positioned. Why would they ever do it in Latin? Just to show they could. 
Every poem oh. has a day date, don't you know that? <laughs> The Dalai Lama has one, obviously the Pope has to have one. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the famous professional models, when they came al- along, the most popular watches today, and uh, for many, many decades, the Samarana, the GMT, and the Daytona. It was, and that's one of the things that Rolex is famous for now. And what most people don't understand is that they were always niche models, they were never hugely popular. There were long periods um, when the Submariner was... Now you can't buy one because everybody wants one. In the old days you couldn't buy one because they didn't bother making them. There were so few of them made. Um, People looked, why do you want to watch the swim in? That's stupid. Um, But in the 60s, and I think the advent of TV shows like... uh, Lloyd Bridges' Sequest, the uh, Jack the Jack Cousteau, yeah. the and uh, Hans and Lottie Haas with the television programs, people began to realise that scuba diving and things of that nature were fun. Yeah, and so watches like the Submariner and the Fifty Fathoms began to take off. Yeah, and they be- and as the sixties progressed and the fashions changed that it no longer became necessary to wear a suit and a tie every day. People began to dress more casually. Remember it was called the swinging 60s? It was people, there. Yeah. And they were swinging actually. This is a subject for a further discussion. Yeah. Um, people began to wear more flamboyant items. And I'm not just talking about shirts with 11 inch long collar points and bell bottom trousers and god knows what else but big watches yeah and suddenly everybody else had a dive watch but the real one was always a submariner yeah for sure and around the same time the gmt international flights becoming part of life and the the glamour of the pan am very much so and it was it was the first relics i bought and oh, it, was, really? it was always to me and I bought it as a tool watch I bought it because I was at that point I was starting to travel backwards and forwards a lot to the states it, and it's not just travelers it's also at that time I was doing a lot of business in the US and yeah. apart from traveling there I was also having to make phone calls and so to know at an instant what time it is in LA yeah. when you're here in London is a great advantage yeah. and it was Nowadays, of course, you, you've got digital clocks on your desk that tell you everything. But yeah. then, that was the only way of knowing, yeah. other than sitting there and trying to extract, trying to subtract eight from seventeen. Yeah. Which, after a few years, yeah. gets more and more difficult. Yeah. And it, it was a Pepsi you got back then. That was the only option, yeah. boy. Yeah. You still have it? I'm afraid not. Uh, but you, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny, I'll tell you, we're going to talk about Daytonas and I'll tell you the story I've, I think I've told you before, was that when I bought that, I bought it from the Watches of Switzerland store, which is now the Patek Boutique. Yeah. I walked in, chose the watch, it was, it, it was available off the shelf, and I was about to pull out my Barclay card to pay for it, and I said to the guy, if I, if I give you cash, do I get a discount? I think it was like 240 quid then. He said, no, sir, sorry, we don't just get Rolex. <laughs> no, no, no. But if you want one of the Daytonas, we can give you 20% off. Yeah. He was fired, the guy, you know that. No. <laughs> Believe me, he wasn't, because yeah. I went back to see him after year, after many, many times and bought other watches from But the point was, in the early days, you couldn't give the Daytonas away. Yeah. And it was the, the right, the Italians that are the ones that really started the, uh, the craze for the, the Italians importing them from the US. Well, uh, but that was only after they stopped making them. Yeah. I mean, the, in, in many ways, the best thing that Rolex ever did with the Daytona was that they stopped making the watch for about six years in between the end of the manual wind and the introduction of the Zenith Daytona. Yeah. And people are weird. We all are. We all want what we can't get. That explains why you can't buy a, a Samara now. You, yeah. Everybody wants what you can't get. And yeah. for, for, for a considerable period of time, you couldn't buy a Daytona. Yeah. And 
that time continues. <laughs> uh, I, I happen to be in a fortunate position, so I happen to own one, but uh, huge demand. Who knows what the real demand for the Daytona would be if you know, Rolex ever came close to uh, uh, to making what the what appears to be a level of demand out there. But wonderful product, wonderful uh, icons, and of course we have all the other great professional models that are there, the Explorers and the Air Kings and the Yacht Masters and so on. So great developments going on with product, great developments going on with, uh, with marketing as well, and uh, uh, again with exploration and, and adventure. So some iconic moments that have happened in Rolex, uh, two of them associated with the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. Yes, in the late th- mid-30s, a trio of RAF flyers were the first people to fly over Mount Everest. And in doing so, or when doing so, they wore Rolex watches. And not long after, Rolex produced a manual wind oyster watch called the Rolex Explorer. Mm. To, I don't know if there was a direct relationship between that flight and the launch of the Explorer, because not long after, they also launched a watch called the Rolex Everest. And the Rolex Everest continued as a model up until the 50s, but by the 50s it was, it was only available in Canada. It was a Canadian market-only watch. But in 53, when the joint British Army Royal Geographical Society uh, expedition managed to finally conquer the peak of Everest, the entire team were equipped with Rolex watches. They were also equipped with Smith watches, and there is still no guarantee as to which as to which watch Hillary was wearing when he climbed the top. However, the one thing we do know is that Tenzing was wearing a Rolex when he gained the summit, because he'd been given a Rolex the year before by the leader of the Swiss expedition, and that Swiss expedition had actually been sponsored by Rolex, and so he definitely was wearing a Rolex. Um, and not long after the that conquest happened, Rolex reintroduced the Explorer, and that watch remains in the catalogue today. Um, I think now the movement has no difference to the movements fitted to any other Rolex. When it was introduced, the movement itself was identical, but the difference was that they were lubricated at the factory with a different oil, which enabled them to go down to much lower temperatures than most other Rolex watches of the period could go to. Oh, interesting. We've got a lot of old images here of, um, uh, it was part of a document of a book that was done for uh, watches of Switzerland and all these uh, old stories and anecdotes of (laughs) of uh, Rolexes that were lost somewhere in ice and... Yes, that's a series of ads, isn't it? They're they're engraved adverts that were done in the 60s. Right. Um, They're wonderful. Yeah, I have a series of those too. And having been to the top of the world, the 1960s Rolex then is involved in the expedition of going to the deepest part of the ocean. The... The words... Uh, Indiana Jones and Swiss don't really go together but if there was such a thing as a Swiss Indiana Jones then it would certainly be the Picard family Mm. they were involved in going to the highest flight that any human being had ever done at that point in a balloon and then for reasons I've never quite understood, they decided they wanted to go to the deepest place in the world. And they built a, what's called, what they called a bath escape. Yeah. Historically, when deep sea exploration had been done, really deep sea exploration had been done, it had been done in a, what's called a bathysphere. And this is a spherical, believe it or not, uh, device, hollowed out, with two or three six-inch thick quartz windows in the outskirt, outside of the sphere, and a screw top 
to make it watertight, you'd get in there with a bunch of oxygen tanks and they would be on a very large boat with a very large crane with a huge drum of cable and they would lower the cable down as far as they could go and they would shoot film from inside, they'd look at all the weird stuff going on, but they were tethered. They had no freedom of movement. Picard's great invention was to take the bathysphere and attach it to the outside of a very strange submarine. Now, submarines are built with thick walls so as to enable them to resist the pressure because you've got people inside who need to breathe air. But what he did was he filled his submarine with petrol. So it had, it had a buoyancy, so it naturally wanted to rise to the surface. Mm. And he attached the bathysphere underneath and then attached to the outside of the submarine a bunch of lead weights. All of this dragged him towards the bottom. And when he wanted to come up, he would just release the lead weights and the thing would would come up. And because the, the people inside the sphere were always at surface air pressure they had no problems with uh, the bends or anything of that nature but the great thing was that it it was independently propelled so when you got down to a particular depth you didn't need to sink all the way to the bottom you can go down to a few hundred feet above the bottom and then stop your descent by releasing some of the petrol so you would achieve negative buoyancy at a a certain level then you could use your propellers to move yourself backwards and forwards so you could explore with this thing and it was it was a revelation it was something new it was something different it was something that had never been done before and because they were swiss and because it was going deep underwater hans wilsdorf thought that it was a natural for him to get involved in yeah and so they built a series of watches and uh, of watch cases and tested them under extreme pressure until they finally found a design that worked if we think that modern panerais or offshore Odomar PKs are big watches, they're nothing compared to this thing. This mm. thing was the size of, it's about half the size of my first flat. <laughs> um, it, w- it was huge, and the glass on it was a hemisphere, because that's the perfect shape for resisting pressure from any angle. Yep. Um, bizarrely, they were manual wind because and even more bizarre they were fitted to the outside of the submersible um, i'm not sure whether mr picard himself actually wore a rolex but the watch that achieved the world's deepest depth was attached to the outside of the uh, submersible and after several hours at a depth which would crush a human being to the size of a packet of cigarettes. The thing came out unscathed, running and keeping time. Yep. And then Rolex again, the great marketing, yep. able to say from the, the deepest ocean to the highest mountain, you have a, you have Rolex, and they've had this great association with with uh, deep sea and aviation and exploration. And they they took great advantage of it by, as I said, they produced a series of these watches and tested them all until they found the the ones that did work. All of the ones that didn't necessarily pass the initial tests, they fitted with new dials and put them bizarrely on a two-tone golden steel bracelet and Mm -hmm. sent them out to major dealers around the world. And as window displays saying this is the watch that went down to the world's deepest yep. oceans yep. and of course last year they just introduced the two-tone uh, on, the, on the sea dweller so history repeating itself um, so I, I get great association and endorsement if you like and, and we've seen that continue with some really wonderful choices of ambassadors of Rolex uh, over the years. And uh, to mention but a few, you know, Roger Federer, I, and especially my wife, I, mean, I find them 
exceedingly charming and, uh, and, and very endearing. And, uh, and of course, others uh, that have come along, uh, Tiger Woods, James Cameron, who, um, who wrote the famous uh, d- uh, director, Hollywood director, um, who repeated the, uh, the, de- the, the, deep the voyage. Yeah. The, the deep and in fact, he's the only one of the ambassadors who have had a watch named for them. Yeah. And uh, as far as I know, he, it's the and it's the only named ambassador Rolex that's in production. And it's still in production, yep. isn't it? The, uh, the multicolored dial one. Yep. He's a, an amazing guy. I had the pleasure yeah. of meeting him too, thanks to Rolex. And I've also had the pleasure of uh, meeting a boyhood hero of mine who was... Uh, so Jackie Stewart, who I'm sure you've met uh, often through through Rolex, and a great ambassador of him, yeah. I think speaks uh, very very well on behalf of the company. So then, just you know, moving ahead to recent developments that uh, we all get hugely excited by from what comes from Rolex, um, and I think something that's we under communicated, and again, it's typical uh, uh, discretion, if you like, from Rolex is just how wonderful the new series of movements are in terms of accuracy and, uh, and durability that were introduced from 2015. The, yeah, the, the, the new series of movements, the 3235, 3255 yeah. and its variations are, are perfect examples of what Rolex do best. It's that they, they're not radical, they're not um, they're not blue sky, amazing new technology. They are gradual evolution of an existing product. The 3135 movement was introduced in the early 80s. And now 30 years later, getting on for 40 years later, this is part, there's been enough development that they've decided to give it a new number. the new accuracy plus or minus two seconds a day is because we're so used to quartz watches we think oh a couple of seconds a day in the terms of mechanical timekeeping that's utterly phenomenal and to do that with a movement that needs servicing once every 10 years again it's just it's beyond most people's comprehension because they, they don't think about that but what it means is that the Contemporary Rolex now is a wear-it-and-forget-it watch. It's accurate enough that you don't need to reset the time on it other than when the clocks change or you move to a different time zone. It's reliable enough that you don't have to worry about wearing it anywhere. And it's long-lasting enough in terms of uh, servicing that... you just put it on your wrist and walk away. Yep. Um, it's as if it's as if people were now selling cars with hundred thousand mile service intervals. Yep. That you'd be selling them on the basis of you'll have this car forever. Ooh. You can drive it twenty four hours a day, three sixty five days a year, and you'll only need it serviced every uh, every ten years, and you'll yeah. pass it on to your son just in, uh, or daughter. Just imagine, and it might um, be worth more than yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I mean, I, I think these new movements are uh, are wonderful, and like you say, great understatement, but achievement by by, by Rolex. And the thing is, because they're inside this totally hermetic case, and Rolex have never been one for glass backs. Most people ignore the movement; they know nothing about it. They've it it just it's just there. Yep. Um, but in fact, it's Rolex's greatest achievement of the last few years is the new movement series. Yeah, no, for sure. And alongside that, great developments happening in the in, in product. Uh, and again, no huge uh, revolutions, but uh, even the Sky Dweller that um, not everybody knew or um, certainly but uh, um, huge consumers of the Sky Dweller that was 80 karat gold as soon as it becomes at a price affordable with the introduction of steel has become again one of the most popular and successful watches that we have. It's because, frankly, we don't usually use the words 
great bargain and Rolex in the same sentence. But the Sky Dweller, particularly in the steel and white gold version, yep. is a ridiculous bargain. You have an annual calendar, two time zone, Oyster Perpetual Chronometer watch for 12 grand? Yes. Yep. Eight this time. I'm sorry. Yep. How much is anybody else's no. annual calendar? No. And none of them are two time zone. No. Uh, I suppose the. What's a Nautilus annual calendar? It would, uh, I may get this wrong, I would think a Nautilus annual calendar is in the early 20s. In, okay. in steel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not, uh, to your point, not two time zones. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the Sky Dweller is uh, unbelievable value. It seems strange saying that, but £12,000 for a watch. But uh, for those that understand the, hmm. the technology that's uh, that's involved. And then you see Dweller, yeah, you're a fan. It's too big. It's, it's remind me, 42? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's personal taste. Yeah. And... Um, no, it's 41. The Yachtmaster's 42. Yep. Which again is just a couple of, it's a couple of centimetres too big. A couple yep. of millimetres too big, sorry. Um, I think 40 for me is about the maximum in in, an, in a Rolex Oyster. Yep. Um, but I'm an old fart. Hardly. <laughs> Fortunately, an expert on watches, though, but um, I think just demonstrating that it does come down to personal yeah. taste, uh, so much of it. Uh, because the Yachtmaster 42 that's come out this year uh, with an amazing bezel uh, on it and the uh, look and feel has been, again, hugely yeah. popular and we're uh, nowhere near being able to satisfy the demand in that either. But I think at the end of the day, as we've been talking through the Oyster Perpetual, uh, whether it's a date just or a, or a day date, is ultimately the, the, the iconic watch of, a, of Rolex. To me, the Oyster Perpetual, without a date, is the, obviously it's the entry-level watch for Rolex, but for me, it's actually some, summarizes all that's best in Rolex. Yep. It's, very, it's quite austere, um, it's available in every size. It's very affordable, and on an oyster bracelet, it's instantly recognised as Rolex. But the other thing I love about that watch, particularly, is that it's available in so many colourways that you can re you yep. can really make it personal. Yep. And that's not a choice until you get up to things like the. Uh, precedent where you can have all sorts of dials and stuff on it, mm. but the Oyster Perpetual, there's number of colourways, number of different loom colours and so on, that really allow you to sort of make it your own. Yep. And it's to me definitely a bargain. Yep. I know. I'd, I'd agree that simple steel Oyster Perpetual is a is a real bargain. I watch though last year, your, your lifetime, and clearly is this wonderful, iconic, recognisable watch at the same time. And all available now in, the, in a great size range, that again, is yeah. just, just what the, the public want, 41, 36, and then the two lady sizes of, yeah. of a 31 and a 28. Interestingly, you were commenting earlier, you're, you're inclined, getting more inclined towards smaller dials, getting inclined towards uh, 36. And it is designed as a men's watch, but uh, our experiences were probably selling more of the 36 millimeter, particularly in the roller sword to, to women, actually. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think now we've reached a point at which there really isn't a man's watch and a woman's watch, yep. other than, uh, you know, there are things that are definitively women's watches, which are small size and covered in diamonds. Those yep. are definitely, but, I don't think there are very many watches that you can say only a man can wear that now. Yep. I mean, my wife and I live in Italy for a good part of the year, and when Panerai's first became popular a few years ago, the thing that I noticed was I saw more women wearing them than men. Oh, really? And nowadays I see, um, particularly in Daytonas, 
I actually have not seen a pink gold Daytona on a man. Yep. I've only seen them on women. Uh, I can confirm it's one of the very, very popular uh, options with women is, a, is the rose gold uh, uh, Daytona. Yeah. And as I say, the 36, uh, particularly Volosaur, is uh, very, very popular with uh, women. But I totally agree, and we've been big proponents of having no gender identification on the, on watches. Who who are we or who are the yeah. brands to say who, you know, what gender should be wearing which watch. Um, but, but great, uh, one uh, really important thing this year for us is uh, our group is actually celebrating uh, our centenary with uh, Rolex. We were the first ever retailers of Rolex uh, back in the, back in 1919. So 2019, we're cel- celebrating 100 years of representing this wonderful brand. Uh, we're half of the market here in the UK. It's half of our business, so it's you know clearly a very very important partnership for us. And we had a wonderful um, celebration of it all in Newcastle, where it all began, uh, just uh, uh, just a couple of months ago. So um, a great uh, a great reference and I think accomplishment for our group that we've been representing this wonderful brand for so long. How do you feel? Now I'm turning the tables on interviewing you. Is what do you think being having that level of heritage gives you as a as a retailer? But I, I do. I mean, the most critical thing in us selling watches to the public at the end of the day is trust. Uh, they really have to trust that they're getting the best advice, that they're getting the real product, and so on. So trust is the the ingredient that all has to be there. And I think the fact that we have been around not necessarily for a hundred years that anybody would give. Uh, credit to but we've been around for generations and people have seen us and they've known of others that have bought from us and it may be their older generation so on that they will instinctively have that trust in us and when you're making a big important purchase in your life you know celebrating some you know some major event in your life spending a lot of money having that heritage and trust I think goes a goes a long way. In front of you there's a little lady's watch with uh, northern goldsmiths on the dial would you like it if you were able to put your names on the dial now? You know, we we do have some limited editions, not with the not with Rolex as it happens, where we are putting our name in the uh, in the case on the back, and we are doing, you know, some special products with uh, with various brands. We'd love to be doing it with Rolex, but they really don't do that anymore. They clearly don't need to do it, and I think it is a really interesting evolution. I think at, way back at the beginning, Hans Wilsdorf in nineteen ninety, I think it was. Uh, he was the one who wanted to put Rolex on the dial when it, back then it was all obviously all the uh, all the retailers and I think he's, he managed to convince the retailers initially for every one one out of every six is that right? He'd, yeah his his initial thing was watches were shipped out in little boxes of six watches yeah. uh, without bracelets and he would say that we're going to put just one in each box and gradually he increased it. But once he introduced the Oyster, the deal was that no Oyster ever left the factory without Rolex Oyster on the dial. And the Rolex Oyster was in one of two positions. It was either at the top of the dial or it was around the subsidiary seconds. If it was around the subsidiary seconds, that allowed space for the retailers to put their name at the top. Later on, the insistence was that Rolex was always at the top and if a retailer's name came on it was below Um, because what most people don't understand is that until the turn of the 20th century there was no such thing as advertising national advertising so there was no such thing as brands and it wasn't until national newspapers were freely available that there was any point of advertising there was any point of having brands so people just went to the shop that they knew and they trusted the retailer that was their relationship was always with the retailer now people's relationship is with brands and retailers fulfill the role of intermediary between the brand and the end customer but then there were no brands yeah. and one of Wilsdorf's greatest creations was to make his watch company one of the first brands and interestingly it is now the most valuable watch brand in the world yep. the company Interbrand who specialised in brand management reckoned that Rolex is the most valuable watch brand 
name in the world by a huge margin. Yeah, well, which I can, again, confirm it undoubtedly mm. is the, uh, the market share, the positioning, the following and social media, whatever criteria you would look at, Rolex is clearly out, out there in a the world of its own. And uh, wonderful to be looking at this piece that you brought in. It goes back to 1920 with the, with the name of Northern Goldsmiths on it that we're delighted to buy from you. So thank you very much for sourcing that for us. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll add that to our archives that we you know, pr- proudly display up in, uh, up in Newcastle. Um, other things that are happening with us in Rolex, we're actually opening a big service centre in, the, in Rolex in Manchester. You are a Rolex? No, we are. Um, it's clearly done all under the supervision of uh, Rolex and with all the approval of Rolex, but we're able to have a, a you know, a central area for all of our specialised equipment and so on, so that we effectively can do everything for our, our Rolex customers out there. So in addition to offering wonderful range of product, we'll be able to give a great uh, service and and uh, response to our customers. We're actually, opening that uh, this month. When this month, will you? I know that you're Rolex agents, but I know that you also sell uh, used Rolex watches. Yes. So you'll be able to put your used Rolex watches through this yes. and give them a Rolex warranty. We'll give a warranty from Watch of the Switzerland. Group, yeah. A two-year warranty from Watch of uh-huh. Switzerland. Yes. And, but you've access because it's a Rolex authorized service centre. You have access to all the parts. And yes, everything. yes, yes. I can see you're thinking about where you'll take in your, <laughs> your your acquisitions. But we'd be delighted to delighted to see you there, of course. And just finally, then I mean, what a wonderful brand. I know we love talking about mm-hmm. it and can talk about it for hours. But what's uh, what's your view about what the future holds for Rolex in the way of product development and, uh, and innovation? I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I probably know more about Rolex than most people who don't actually work for the brand. Um, I'm I'm in regular communication with people who work there, both Rolex UK and Rolex Geneva, and I have no idea. I mean, (laughs) the simple truth is that the CIA and MI6 send people regularly to Rolex Geneva (laughs) to learn how to keep secrets. People... You know, it always amazes me in the in the lead up to Basel every year. People say, "Oh well, they're going to be introducing this and this new." And I just think, where do you get this stuff from, guys? I mean, you know, I don't. I I remember speaking to the CEO of Rolex USA during one Basel a few years ago, and I said, "What do you think about the?" Uh, one of the models that had just been introduced, he said, oh, I thought it was gorgeous. Um, you know, it, it was the first time I'd seen it. Uh, I said, yeah, same for me. Uh, I said, when did you, you know, when did you first hear about it? He said, uh, the day before the show opened. Yeah. We, have a, we have a briefing at Geneva and they show us everything. Up until that moment, I don't know anything. Yeah. So if the CEO of Rolex USA doesn't know anything, how do these know-it-alls seem to yeah. think they do? Yeah. It, it's. It, I don't know where they're going. What I do, if I had to make a guess, they will continue the thing that they have done beautifully for a hundred years, which is to evolve gradually. Yeah. They may introduce variations on a theme in the same way that the forty-two millimeter white gold yachtmaster was a variation on the thirty-eight millimeter rose gold yachtmaster. But if you had to ask me what my bet would be. My my bet would be, I don't know. Okay, I'll go one better then. I'll say that I think they're going to be even more exciting, uh, even more attractive, even more wonderful marketing, and, and probably even more development in the area of, of movements and the and the accuracy and so on. And continue, I think, to to set the standards for a. Everybody else that's uh, that's out there. Spoken well, like a retailer, but I noticed that you didn't actually say, "Oh, well, they're going to bring out a new Explorer, or they're going to bring out a new Day Day." So, yeah, you, you, you're you're staying in my camp of not really knowing. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I was getting away with it, but uh, and uh, I can confirm to you too that leading up to Basel, the number of contacts we get from consumers to say, "I hear this is getting uh, introduced in Basel. Would you get me one?" And they actually have an image, a photograph of a watch that, of course. Never, never come into being at any time. So amazing! I totally agree with you. How did they manage to keep this uh, secret? But 
everything about Rolex is amazing and um, and wonderful that we've got one of the world's true experts here to come and uh, share that amazement uh, with us. Always a great pleasure to, to talk with you, James. So thank you for joining us today. Not at all. It's always great fun to talk to you too, Brian. Okay. And uh, we'll come across, we'll sit across this table again, I'm sure. And I'm already looking forward to it. Thank you and thank you everyone again for uh, for listening.